Um, oh man, Eric, I just got your text about the StreamYard link. So glad you got on. Exactly. <laughs> Jeff Howe, Eric Henry. It's only now Eric filling in uh, for Jordan Scrux today. Jordan's having Jordan's moving, having some Wi-Fi issues. We've all been there. Yes, CB, my man Barrick Neely could definitely be on the Texas State Mount Rushmore, especially now that he is uh, that he's back. He's back in the program. So yeah, Ricardo scramble drill. We gotta be like gotta be a little Jordan Humphrey and be really good at that scramble drill. Eric, let's go ahead and uh, talk about the, you know, there. Actually, there was a personnel move for Texas this morning. Yeah. Billy Glasscock, who's been Steve Sarkeesian's director of player personnel, uh, pretty much since the start, uh, is moving on. He's going to Ole Miss. I, I think there's a, a little bit of freak out about this, and I don't, I don't want to poo-poo that job and say, you know, hey, don't freak out about it. Because anytime you lose somebody who's part of your organization that's been there and helped build it, uh, it's a loss. But I and, and it's different for every school. I guess it all depends on how much the head coach prioritizes in recruiting and what they put on their plate in recruiting. And as we know, Sark puts a lot on his plate when it comes to recruiting. Billy Glasscock's role was one in, in terms of the director of player personnel. You're almost, and, and man, it's going to be a couple years down the road before these references are dated. It's almost like you're a board op at a radio station or a copy editor at a newspaper. Um, you, you might not get the glory. You might know people might not know your name first. But, you know, if you don't hold it together, all hell can break loose. So that was kind of Billy Glasscock's role. You know, it's it's unfortunate. Sark's first choice for director of player personnel was Drew Hughes. And if you, the name Drew Hughes sounds familiar, he was Jeremy Pruitt's director of player personnel at Tennessee. And he was one of the people mentioned in the whole Tennessee NCAA investigation involving McDonald's bags full of money and whatnot. And yeah, Drew Hughes, uh, Drew Hughes got caught up in that. So Sark really couldn't hire him at that point. Uh, just you can't hire somebody that's under investigation by the NCAA. And as it turned, I don't know if uh, Drew Hughes got a show cause or what, but it was, uh, yeah, it was not great. So Sark hires Billy Glasscock and it, it's a loss, but Eric, that, that recruiting department right now between Brandon Harris and Taylor Searles, the, the roles everybody has. If J.M. Jones, I'm trying to think, J.M. Jones might have been there during Charlie Strong's tenure. I, I don't, I, I don't, I think J.M.'s been there that long. Uh, but it, at any rate, you've got, you know, that thing is such a machine now that I would assume the line forms to the left of somebody that wants to come in and be Sark, Sark's DPP. First off, Jeff, like I said, appreciate you having me on second day in a row. feel like Pat Mahomes, not the second, but the original Pat Mahomes getting a call from the bullpen. <laughs> Step in here. I uh, figure you'd appreciate that reference to baseball guy, Jeff. Yes. No, I mean, listen, to, to your point, it, like you said, it, it depends. It, it can vary from school to school, program to program, how much that is held up by the head coach. But Again, you know, I hate to lean on my G5 experience. This isn't like Florida International where you lose one guy and all of a sudden it's like, oh, we don't we don't have anybody left and we got to scramble for it, right? You know, I mean, yeah. I remember when the uh, the recruiting coordinator position was eliminated and they didn't, they didn't replace it, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's not what we're talking about here. And I'm also glad that you mentioned uh, both Brandon Harris and Taylor Searles. I feel like, you know, you can't go seemingly, especially this time of year, two, three hours on Twitter without seeing them yeah. being involved in some form or fashion, some sort of deal with comes to recruiting so yeah i mean again this is texas this is you know big boy football you know that 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 recruiting department is going to be staffed uh just to the point where it needs to be now, here's the thing i will say jeff i'll just say this in terms of the importance of the role a reason i i do think it, it is, does kind of vary from case to case is this you know in today's college football right and, and it feels like we 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 use that that you know lead in that phrase so much nowadays but especially with NIL and recruiting and, and the transfer portal, you got to have, in my mind, just a general GM. I mean, I think that yeah. role is extremely important. Right now, at the end of the day, right, your head coach is going to be your GM, right? Yeah, that, that's, the, that, that's, that's the guy who's player personnel. That's the Bill Belichick, you know, who's, who's, who's making sure, you know, that roster is, is set. But you need to have someone who is in the weeds daily of checking the portal, you know, knowing who's available, this, that, that can't fall on your head coach, right? The actual nuts right. and bolts of it in my mind. So again, no reason to think that Texas won't have that position adequately filled. And like we've talked about, they've already got, you know, it's not a one person recruiting department here at this level. So right. no need to, to be alarmed in that regard. In my mind. Yeah. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, uh, I didn't run down everybody in that recruiting department, but Kendall Perry's another one that does a great job. 
you know, Michael Huff's title is assistant director of player development, but Huff is just kind of all over the place, uh, has his hands in a lot of pots. Uh, J.M. Jones, who I mentioned, Bobby Merritt, who is kind of the uh, the keeper of the transfer portal right now and has done a really – Bobby Merritt has CFL and NFL front office experience and has really uh, done a good job of helping Sark and then that staff kind of cull through the portal because there's – I've I've gotten a chance, Eric, to take a look at the transfer portal uh, a couple times, and there will be names in there. Like I, I think people forget, like if you're a walk on and you want to transfer, like your name goes into the portal. So really, it's just kind of you're almost like a reporter at that point. All right, I got I got a hundred leads right here. I gotta I gotta cull through this because eighty of these are gonna be complete garbage. Fifteen of these are gonna be kernels of stuff that maybe you need to look at and five of these are going to be things that we're really going to need to follow up on so uh, bobby merritt does a really good job managing the transfer portal my poor analogy aside uh austin shelton also working with the defense jm jones works with the offense in terms of player personnel so like i said it's such a machine and there's gonna be some really good candidates out there because again right now you know with the way texas is going with the way sark has this thing going you get to live in austin you're going to work in the sec I don't worry about Sark being able to replace Billy Glasscock, who's going to go now work for Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss. I don't worry about it at all. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Eric, I'm assuming you were looking at CB's question about, about Sark hiring a GM. I, I don't know because if this were – if you would equate the, the Texas program and how that organization works to an NFL front office, Sark would be kind of like how Pete Carroll's had to set up in Seattle where – you're the head coach and there might be somebody with a GM title, but you, you've got a hundred percent say in personnel. Uh, you're pretty much running that show. So, and we know, man, I just think Sark, you know, I remember we were at coaching school. Maybe this was going into the 22 season and it was Mike, it was Mike Roach and I and a couple of reporters in there. Sark was doing a press conference and Mike asked Sark is like, you know, you, you want to, you want to be the guy that texts recruits and to be doing recruiting all day. You know, this is part of that healthy obsession, Eric, that we talked about yesterday with Sark. Right. And Mike was like, how do you find, you know, how do you find time to do it all, especially as a head coach? And Sark was like, I just do. Like, almost like, like, what else am I supposed to do? So, yeah, I think, you know, Ricardo's right. Sark, Sark is the GM for all intents and purposes. But I don't, I like I said, I don't want to poo-poo like it's a loss or I'm just spinning it or whatever. But I, I think this is a move that, they'll be able to find a suitable replacement. And I don't, I don't expect Texas to, to take a dip in recruiting because, you know, Billy Glasscock's going to take this bag of secrets with him to, to Ole Miss and suddenly Lane Kiffin's going to start changing the way he recruits. So it's, I don't worry about that. But Eric, again, this is the challenge of as you become successful as an organization, people in your organization are going to become coveted by other organizations. And now it's your job to lose people and to continue to replace them with good people. At the end of the day, it's it's a good thing. We kind of talked about this yesterday, right? Of course, you don't want to lose. Uh, no one wants to lose, you know, key members of your staff up and down the line, regardless of what it is. But right. as we talked about, this is this is a sign of things trending in the right direction. Is when people look into your program and your organization and say, okay, insert this person, insert that person. We want them to be a part of our staff. So, at the end of the day, like I said. This is, while, you know, it's it's not ideal, it's a good thing in the sense that it's, it's indicative of the program trending in the right direction. And clearly the, the, the things and mechanisms that you have going on inside of your building are things that people want to, want to, uh, to emulate. So no doubt about it. Yeah. And Texas, you know, it's it's strange, Eric. I, I don't remember if we talked about this yesterday. I think this was Jordan and I were talking about this on Tuesday. National Signing Day, we're less than a week away. And honestly, Sark will probably have a press conference because there's a lot of stuff to get caught up on with Johnny Nance, the Johnny Nansen hire, the Kenny Baker hire. There's stuff that we haven't gotten Sark on the record with yet, but there's not going to be anything to talk about. And some of those portal additions that they made between you know the bowl game and the start of the semester, but there's not going to be any any news release on signing day because there's not going to be anything going on. They're not. You know, they're out of it for high school guys. Terry Bussey's the only guy who probably is still even on the board, and, and that's not going to work out for Texas. 
you know, the portal's pretty much non-existent right now after Jabbar Muhammad going to Oregon. It's just, I've never had this, Eric. I've never had that first Wednesday in February be, I don't want to say it's going to be a day off for me, but like, I'm going to wake up at like a normal time and it's just going to kind of be a normal work day. It's just going to be another Wednesday. It's not going to be anything special. It's just weird for me to wrap my head around. Yeah, it's almost going to be like a like a Monday for us during the game week, you know, during the season. It's like, all right, you know, we know we're we're heading to presser and, and we'll see what comes out of it. But it, it's not going to be for those who've you know, covered football, college football for a while. It's not going to be that typical. Right. You, you get up at, you know, 6 a.m., 5 a.m., especially, you know, you guys here on, on this coast, you know, me just making my way over to Central Time. Right. Yeah. And you start seeing those those guys come in one by one by one. And yeah, it, it's going to be a bit unique. I will say I am I am looking forward to hearing further from you know the press release statement on kenny baker just to kind of get a, a little more insight as to what made uh you know sark truly feel comfortable with this hire we talked a lot yesterday about it so we won't rehash that too much but i'd love to kind of get him on the record there and just kind of what we talked about yesterday how he feels having guys like johnny nansen and pk will help kind of bring along a younger um assistant in that regard but no it, it's gonna be unique it's gonna be interesting i mean yeah. i think for, for guys like us it, it'll definitely be interesting i think it's the first one for me as well uh, Jeff, the first time where everyone's been signed. And it's like, all right, well, there's that. I always equate signing day. This, the December press conference is so hectic because especially like this year's because you, you're so if you're Sark, you're excited about the signing class. You're excited about which who are the portal additions at that point? It was Andrew McCuba and Matthew Golden. That was it, right? Yeah, that was yeah, it. Yeah, when we had the press conference. Yeah. But also it's like, all right, we really got to ask about bowl practices now because you guys got a playoff game in that Sugar Bowl in about 13 days so or whatever it was. So it was really interesting. But it used to be that February press conference. You know this, Eric. You know, to me, I always equated it to the start of spring training for baseball teams. Sure. No manager and GM, like when pitchers and catchers report here, which I don't know, that's, that's a couple weeks away at this point, right? I haven't paid attention to what that date is. But you're not going to see – a, a general manager or a manager in baseball get up to a microphone either in Florida or Arizona and be like, you know what? Our, our off season was dog crap. Now I think we're going to be very good this year. It's hey, everybody the guys that, you know, we need some guys to get healthy. They got healthy. We go, some guys went to play winter ball and we just, we feel like we got a great team this year. We got a really good chance to do something special. Everybody loves their signing class. Even if they hate their, even if a coach hates his signing class, he loves his signing class. Right. By the time he steps in front right. of you. It is the, it is the, a day of ultimate optimism. Everybody just oozes optimism on signing day, and then the reality is like three years later, half the dudes on that list are either gone or you know just like you forget that they're on the roster. So it's always fascinating how much we kind of obsess about it from class to class, and then you're all excited on signing day, and then it's like all right, put that one to bed. It's on to the next one. It's just this never ending loop. So. I don't know where I was going with that. Just an observation by me. So. <laughs> Jeff, I'll, I'll say this. Since you use a spring training analogy, I I, I got to give you this one. Just Rami, you're an Astros fan, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. So, you know, I, I was grew up in Tampa being a, a Rays fan. I remember uh, I'm one sorry. of the, my, yeah, exactly. And we're going back to the, the Del Rays days here when my first um, real you know introductions to spring training, my pops takes me out there and listen to the, the press conference from Larry Rothschild. And he's talking about, you know, Jeff in Tampa that had a nickname called the hit show. The hit show was Fred McGriff, Vinny Castilla, Greg, Greg Vaughn? Vaughn, Jose Canseco, yeah. right? And of course, just to, to bring it all the way full circle to, you know, with the, you sign a class and you think it's going to be one thing and then look back and, you know, it's like, oh, this wasn't what I thought it was. It took all of like 60 games to realize the hit show was not going to be the hit show. And Canseco was picking up speeding tickets in Tampa. And oh, I think the crime dog's the only one who stayed healthy, so. Just had to run that funny story by real quick. Man, Jose in Tampa, like the fact that Jose Canseco lives in Vegas is like the most predictable thing I could have saw for an athlete's career. But I think we forget, Eric, your your hometown has the <laughs> reputation for better or worse of being the strip club capital of America. Jose in Tampa had to be like the most wheels off experience. Like I, I can't think of a except maybe if Tampa had an NBA team and Lamar Odom played there. Like, I can't think of a, a worse place to drop an athlete than Jose Canseco in Tampa. Jeff, Tampa's nightlife has gotten many of athletes. Akib Tlaib, 
victim oh, of the Tampa nightlife. Yeah. Josh Freeman, victim of the Tampa nightlife. Stories I, I won't I won't tell on air, but <laughs> especially me and Josh Freeman being of similar age. So actually, Josh is a little bit older than me, but you know, we're being around around the same time. Yeah, uh, Tampa nightlife has gotten many of athletes. Man, that, <laughs> it's it's pretty it's pretty wheels off. Thank God Tampa doesn't have an NBA team. Now that I think about it. Um, but now let's let's move on. I, I want to go over some stuff, Eric. We touched on it a little bit at the end of the show yesterday, but it gives us a chance to dive in. Uh, if you haven't been over Horns twenty four seven today, I would encourage you to get over there because Chip Brown is dropping the goods in the Insider this morning, and there's a lot of their stuff on the indoor practice facilities, some winter conditioning notes, early impressions on some of the newcomers. But Eric, I wanted to focus on the Senior Bowl stuff and. You know, there are guys, I, I think when, when you talk about guys that need to heal injuries, like Jatavian Sanders was going to have to heal that ankle at some point. Like at some point that thing had to get right. And he knew, <laughs> I forgot which poster it was that asked me, but I had mentioned something about Jonathan Brooks um, leading up to the Sugar Bowl. Maybe it was the Big 12 championship game. I don't remember. And somebody asked me, hey, what are the chances Brooks can play against Washington? I said, 0.0%. Like, you're not coming back from an ACL tear in eight weeks or whatever it was. It just doesn't happen. So we knew Jonathan Brooks wasn't going to play in the Shrine Bowl. Uh, Byron Murphy, I guess, has, has some kind of injury. I, I think we forget about these Texas guys. I think CB asked me in this chat, like, what? You know, well, what's going on with the guys not going to the Senior Bowl? I think you forget, like, there are a lot of guys in the Senior Bowl that either didn't play in bowl games, opted out of bowl games, or honestly, there were bowl games where – the coaches were probably just trying to get a look at young guys. So if you're a vet, you probably basically got like a couple weeks off because right. that's just how bowl practices work. But if you're texting me, you're having like full-fledged hard practices really up until the time you left Austin to go to New Orleans because a lot of that is just, you know, clean up and a lot of just, uh, you know, it's not a lot of contact in the on-site practices. But that's a long season. And I'm not making excuses for those guys, but if you had something that well, was lingering, if you've got an agent who's worth his salt, he's telling you, like, look, dude, I know you want to go compete at the Senior Bowl, but at this point you're better off just healing up and making sure you're 100% ready to go for the combine. No, you know, Jeff, no doubt about it. Again, I'll give you a quick story and then run back to the Texas guys. I covered the Shrine Bowl uh, 2019, back when it was still in Florida over in St. Pete. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was, again, I was covering G5s at the time. So a, a kid from FIU got drafted in the sixth round cornerback who's uh, with Carolina for a bit. You know, he's making his name for himself. And again, you know, FIU played in a very early bowl game that year. So he's going up against, you know, a P5 receiver. And, you know, he, he kind of wins the rep, right? You know, they're going scrimmaging, yeah. you know, goes live and whatnot. And, and you know, he's, he's in the guy's face. And the receiver, who I won't name, noble P5 receiver, ends up saying, yeah, MFR, like you had all this time rest. Like <laughs> I just stopped playing. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, but but to, that it was it was actually drop dead hilarious. I mean, I think all of us got a kick out of it. But to bring it back to the Texas guys, no, I mean in in, in this realm, yeah. Listen, not only are they are they going, they're going hard in, in preparation to try to win a sugar ball and try to win a national championship. So you had to expect, even if you know, we didn't know it at the time that some of these guys were just dealing with, even if it's not even nagging injuries, Jeff, just, all right, I'm going to be there. I need to talk, you know, get, in, in, uh, get face-to-face with some of these scouts and, you know, do yeah. some of that, that stuff. But as far as actual performance, I mean, you can save some of that stuff in my mind till pro day and, and in some cases the combine. Because a lot of the stuff on film, and Jeff, I'm curious if you see it differently, I don't care if it's the Shrine Bowl. I mean, I guess maybe Shrine Bowl, some of the, the quote-unquote lower-level All-Star games, maybe it's a little bit different. We really need to get out there and, and, and put a little bit more um, on tape or in front yeah. of the NFL scouts. But if you're at the Senior Bowl, you've got enough of these guys who have played significant amount of snaps in their career. to You can go turn on the tape. Like, you know, four or five days being in, in Mobile isn't going to you can you can maybe raise your stock a little bit, but not significantly to a level right. that you couldn't at pro day, right? In my mind, or at the combine. So just right. curious your, your thoughts there. I think no. I think if you're a guy like Byron Murphy, we've seen it in the mock drafts and look the mock draft world and what goes on behind closed doors in the National Football League are two different things. But a lot of that stuff, I don't care whose mock you're looking at. Well, you know, and I'm not spilling any secrets here. A lot of the stuff is going to come from agents or, or whatever, but it's. 
there are kernels of truth in terms of what the league really thinks when you look at mock drafts and prospect rankings. So don't poo-poo it. It's not just guys throwing darts and hoping they land something. I mean, there is substance behind at least the, the guys that, you know, like our guys at CBS, CBS, whether it's Ryan Wilson or Christian Prasso, Josh Edwards. I mean, those guys have have information and ways to get it. So, you know, the the Mel Kuypers of the world, they talk to front office people and whatnot or, or, or agents or whoever. So I say all that to say Byron Murphy's stock could not be hotter than it is right now. He doesn't – I mean, at this point, if he's not – if he's not his full, because Byron Murphy's again one of those guys we talk about, Eric, where you're not, you're, you're, he's got two speeds. He's got off and he's got on, right? Like he's not going to go to mobile and dial it down. He's going to go full blast. And for his body, it's probably best for him to, to kind of just, just take a couple weeks off. Like you said, those four or five days of mobile, what's he going to do? Go from a, a middle of the first round pick to a top, the top five pick? Like I, Maybe, maybe not, but you could only hurt yourself, I think, at that point. And, you know, if you're Jordan Whittington or Jalen Ford, you kind of are where you are in terms of your stock. Like, the senior bowls for a guy like Christian Jones. It's a guy that Christian Jones, I think we all look at him and say, okay, day three pick, somewhere in there. But Christian Jones is at a really good senior bowl. The first day, he was awesome. Seems like Tavondre Sweat kind of needed to get his feet underneath him day one, and day two was better. But if Christian Jones goes from being a, and I say that because, you know, from a measurable standpoint, because you can't coach 6'5 and 320 pounds with 34 inch or 34 plus inch arms and his wingspan and his feet, you can't coach that. If he goes from, maybe teams had him, I'm sure some teams might have had him as a priority free agent on their board. But if he goes from being a priority free agent to an early day three pick or maybe even a day two, yeah. Christian Jones could, in theory, really do that. He's, he had a chance to do that. So I agree with you. I think the Senior Bowl, like if I'm a quarterback, if I'm a quarterback, there's no way I go to the Senior Bowl. Exactly. Let me rephrase that. If I'm a top-level quarterback. Right. If you're, a guy like, if you're a guy like Spencer Rattler, I don't think you have a choice. I think you have to go. But if I'm, you know, like if Drake May was in a position to go to the Senior Bowl, if I'm Drake May, well, now I go to the Senior Bowl. I'm only going to hurt my stock. And it's... You might say, well, guy, you know, guys need to guys need to get out there and compete. Yeah, but you know, sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. You know, like just you don't need to do anything. When it's easy to say that, Eric, when you don't have potentially millions of dollars on the line and potentially generational wealth for your family on the line, based on how your NFL career tracks. Yeah. And, and listen, I'll, I just kind of, you know, want to add to the, the point you talked about the quarterbacks. And that's what I was I was agreeing with you is that, yeah, if you're a top level guy, I was just racking my brain trying to think who's the last top level guy. I mean, the first one that comes to mind and this wasn't necessarily of a, a talent thing as much as, you know, a, a height thing. Right. A size measurable thing. Didn't Johnny Manziel go to senior bowl? No, Johnny was an underclassman. Johnny's deal was he had that weird deal. Remember where he went in full pads to throw at pro day? That's that's right. That's okay. That's what I'm mixing up with. That's what I'm mixing up with. Yeah. So I'm just trying to remember the last big time guy who went to the senior bowl. But yeah, if you're a fringe guy, it doesn't matter if you want to, they tell you go throw in the parking lot, right? You'll go throw to, you know, anybody, right? Because you're trying to show um, your skills. Probably probably Carson Wentz. But he was already trending that way, but he needed to go because because you're an FCS guy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I cannot think of the last big time our five quarterback who, who who went to the senior bowl. So just in, into that point, but yeah, it's, it's what you said in, in terms of like guy like Christian Sure, That's someone there who, you know, the measurables are there, but you have some uh, a level of inconsistency in his play, especially where he's really started to put the tape together over the past, what, you know, mm-hmm. year and a half, two years. Okay. Yeah. That's a guy who needs to be at the senior bowl. Right. But someone, you know, like Byron Murphy, as you said, him going from uh, a mid first round pick, maybe top 10, top five, that could happen in theory, but in my mind, that the same thing could get him there is an excellent pro day, right? Because we've seen some of the jumps that have come out of pro day or the combine to where it's like all of a sudden you're in the discussion and it's not X amount of weeks coming off of your season. Yeah, so that, there, that there's, there's nothing if, – if you're an NFL front office guy and you didn't see enough of Byron Murphy on tape to get an idea of what he can do, you probably don't need to be an NFL front office guy or a scout. Because 
everything is on everything is going to be on the tape and honestly we talked about it going into the year eric even even really going into byron's sophomore year his freshman year he didn't get a ton of snaps but it's like you know like it just felt like byron murphy needs to get more snaps because if you looked at you know the one thing i like people can say what they want about pro football focus it's a lot better than what we used to have which was nothing nothing <laughs> and if you look at it i just like that it tastes it ba- it's basically a snap a per snap analysis of how you're doing and I, if you looked at byron murphy's numbers in 21 you're like dude byron murphy had a hell of a year it just seems like maybe if he just gets more snaps you get that the more snaps he gets and it translated like it turns out the more Byron Murphy played, you got that same production every single snap. So again, I don't know what he would need to show anybody in Mobile that would drastically change their opinion of what he is. Uh, to Vondre Sweat, on the other hand, and I'll just reference uh, Chip's article. He talked to a couple Senior Bowl sources. You know, kind of leaned on some people day one, didn't have a great day, but then just he was burying dudes in practice yesterday. And it didn't weigh in, which is interesting. I mean, look, T-Sweat's been on the banquet circuit, right? Like, I would imagine, you know, the Outland Trophy ceremony, Eric, is in Omaha. You ever been to Omaha? You ever been to Omaha, Nebraska? never have. Okay. Omaha, Nebraska is the first place where I got acquainted with the concept of the Italian steakhouse. Uh-huh. Which okay. basically, okay. if you go to a steakhouse in Omaha, you know how, like, think of a normal side of the steakhouse, right? Like, if you, what's your go-to side of the steakhouse, Eric? Uh, go to side, uh, probably you know, asparagus, mashed potatoes. Yeah, maybe I, I, I like, uh, I'll like if you can candy up some Brussels sprouts, I'll do sure. that. Sure. The, the side they give you in Omaha, they bring a side of spaghetti out with with your steak, and I'm not talking like, yeah, just some like pasta noodles. No, it's like there's spaghetti and meat sauce on, on, on the same place where I'm about to eat this 10 ounce steak. So it's, uh, yeah, it's I say that to say. I don't think T-Sweat ate what would be conducive to a, a proper weigh-in while he was in Omaha. So he's been on the banquet circuit, been taking it easy. So that weight's probably not where he wants it to be. He's going to weigh in at the combine, which I'm sure it, we look at the combine weight and it'll be it'll be good. So Jeff, to, to, to quote, quote the man himself, and I'm pretty sure you were there for this, <laughs> you come to the University of Texas, you got all the food you want. <laughs> He was the best lines. He he was talking about. I think Coburn had given everybody nicknames, and I think Thomas Jones. Shout out to TJ, by the way, statesman, good dude. Uh, I think TJ asked him, "What's your nickname?" And Sweat said, "Loaf." And I'm like, "Oh, maybe that's because maybe he was like lazy at one time and then turned it on." And Thomas goes, "He's like." What is that, by the way? Like meatloaf? And T-Sweat goes, yes, meat? Meatloaf? I'm like, yeah, okay, of course, Devondre Sweat's nickname would reference meatloaf. Is there a better fat man meal than meatloaf? It's just like this big, huge block of meat covered in tomato sauce. I, I think that's like the ultimate fat man meal, right? Jeff, I'm ashamed to say this, and this is probably, you know, a byproduct of being A, a Floridian, being, you know, south of Orlando, and B, coming from a product to a Jamaican parents. I had never eaten meatloaf until like two years ago. So I am not the most uh, oh, meatloaf. So where where was your first? Where was it's it's it's, it's like it never have I it never have I ever do. Where was your first meatloaf experience? <laughs> it was it was at a, a now ex uh girlfriend's um place. How how was it? It was dry. I'd be honest, it was dry, wasn't it? It, it was it, it was all right. It was all right, just just in case. This is someone who has Texas ties, and their family has Texas ties. So just in case they're watching, Jeff. <laughs> that meatloaf, that meatloaf had to be dry. Meatloaf had to be dry. You need to get you, you need to figure out. Uh, man, I tell you what, this is a great part of being fat because I've had many good meals. The two best meatloafs I had, one was in Oxford, Mississippi, of all places, before the Texas Ole Miss game in 2012. Went to Ajax Diner, had some great meatloaf. The other was before the Texas Gonzaga basketball game, okay. Chris Beard's first year. Uh, I went to, uh, I forget the name of the place, but it's a diner that's in like an old train car. Basically they took an old train car and fashioned it into a diner. And I had some meatloaf there on a recommendation of one Craig way. And that damn train car meatloaf, it it went hard. It was strong, very good meatloaf in the train car. 
So CB, you said cold meatloaf sandwich. That just sounds disgusting. I don't. I think I just lost my appetite for lunch. That just sounds like I don't know, man. That just sounds gross. So I'll take your word for it, CB. Um, but anyway, enough of meatloaf. On Christian Jones, we talked about him a little bit yesterday, but a guy that uh, a late comer to football didn't get involved with it really hard and heavy until kind of his junior year of high school was a late ad for Texas in that 2018 signing class was going to be a project. And I keep on, I keep on saying this, but uh, the one thing about Christian Jones, because it's kind of like, you know, you you go to a couple preseason practices, but because we don't, you know, no media anywhere, I think goes to practice during the week. I think Florida state maybe, but we don't get to see guys during the week. Um, and, and when I, you know, preseason and throughout the season, when you see guys warm up before home games, I'm not exactly looking, you know, trying to pick out Christian Jones. I'll never forget he walking on the field at the Superdome for one of the Sugar Bowl practices. And he was on the scout team because Georgia had, Georgia had a couple of those big offensive linemen. And he was Ishmael Wilson on the, or Isaiah Wilson, Isaiah Wilson on the Georgia scout team. And we're in that 79, and I'm like, that's what you want an offensive tackle to look like. And I was just blown away because I was like, at the time, I was like, dude, it's been a long – it had been a long time since I had seen Texas. Probably Jonathan Scott was the last time, honestly, I'd seen Texas have an offensive tackle that looked like Christian Jones looked. And thinking, like, man, there's something there. Like, you knew the game wasn't there yet, but, like, there's something there. And – I'm I'm really happy that he ended up being, you know, a 40-game starter at Texas. Just seems like a good dude, good teammate. And uh, I don't know if quietly is the right term, Eric, but just kind of what you want your offensive lineman to be. Like, you just want to be able to put him in a position. Not everybody needs to be Anthony Munoz. Yeah. You just kind of want to put him out there and just not worry about it. Like, yeah, I don't have to – you're my starting right tackle. I know you're going to be solid. you dependable. I don't have to worry about you. You'd love to get Kelvin Banks. The guys are going to be first-round picks, but Christian Jones was good. And you almost take that for granted, just how good and solid he was. You you, you didn't realize what kind of job he was doing until you get to the K-State game. You're like, oh, he's not playing. Cam Williams is a redshirt player as a sophomore. He's going to get thrown in there for his first start, and you just kind of hope it holds together. Christian Jones just ended up being – a good, solid, dependable player for Texas who hopefully, I really hope he's got his best football ahead of him. Jeff, this is going to be somewhat of a random observation, but I think if you cover football long enough, there are certain things that just stand out to you. And you've, you know, covered this team for a while. So there's nothing there that you just recap that I, you know, I can't really uh, double back on. But Jeff, I'm blanking. I cannot remember which week it was when Texas was down a couple offensive linemen. And Christian Jones, it was someone who was playing at his spot at right tackle at the kickout. I can't remember if it was DJ or who it was. Um, nevertheless, what I observed, Jeff, and you may remember this, was Christian Jones, when he was banged up, because he had kind of had it was like an ankle or what it was, mm-hmm. relentlessly trying to get back in the ball game. I watched him for a good, you know, drive and a half just on the sideline, going through his pass pro, you know, going through steps, oh, seeing if he can get man. back out there, right? <sighs> The reason that stands out to me is because a couple of the things you said. A, someone who was a newcomer, a latecomer to, 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 to football, right? Yeah. Is, is high school years. Developing that love for it, right? That's one. Two, and you can probably speak this better than I can, it seemed as if, and he kind of hinted at it, that the light bulb kind of went off for him. I guess maybe it was that Kansas loss when, you know, uh, he got all the messages and, and really took it to heart. Mm-hmm. But that's someone who clearly has that love and passion, desire, not to just to play football, to, but now that the light bulb's gone off, but to be great at it, right? Yeah. And there's something, again, about just seeing a guy who, for all intents and purposes, you know, especially a, a, a lower body injury like that, like, all right, let me just rest it. You know, I'm not yeah. right. But he was going through, for, for good, a drive and a half, just going through, driving hard on pass pro, you know, trying to keep himself warm just in case he was needed. That speaks to me, and again, maybe it's, you know, I'm sure you as a former O-line guy, they'll speak to you more, but something about that just says to me, like, all right, that's someone who you're going to get the best football of him going forward, in my mind, in addition to, as you said, yeah. the, the 40 starts and, and just the experience. He he loves the game. Yeah. You know, and, and, and he doesn't take it for granted is a big thing. And I think, you know, 
honestly, Eric, like for him to for him to come back for 2022, because he could have jumped in the portal and gone because he didn't have a great year in 21. And they kicked him out to left tackle and that didn't work. And you're five and seven, and you know, everybody's telling you how bad you are. Everybody's ready for somebody to come in and replace you. And, you know, I I, I even might have said it. You know, maybe Christian Jones is the odd man out in that offensive line group when you talked about Kelvin Banks and some of those young guys coming in. But, you know, the fact that guys can go one way or the other, they can say, man, I just need to get a fresh start somewhere else or I'm going to buckle down, work my ass off and try to be the best player I can be. And he really took Kyle Flood's teaching to heart. I think that's the that's what you hope for when you get a guy that's young to football. He almost doesn't know what he doesn't know. And you just hope that, all right, well, I'm going to just buy into what this coach is telling me because I believe in him. He probably knows what's best for me. And Kyle Flood's a really good teacher of the position, and Christian Jones took to it, and we saw him. He was much better in 22 than he was in 21. And he was much better in 23 than he was in 22. So if I'm an NFL front, look, again, maybe they want it, Maybe the NFL wants to kick him inside the guard. Maybe they want to keep him at tackle. I don't know. But I know he's got all the tools that you can't coach. And in terms of a guy that's going to be coachable, a guy that you're not going to have to worry about in the locker room, a guy that is going to give you everything he's got, there's a lot of Christian Jones is going to check a lot of boxes for a lot of teams. And I, I say all that and, and we're uh, probably at a good time where I kind of wanted to hit on it, but I wrote a story the other day. I, I don't think people realize it. And then, you know, Eric, I was, I was talking to you about this Mac Brown post national championship. That window wasn't maximized. You start looking at Texas in the NFL draft and I was started thinking because it clicked when I saw Daniel Jeremiah put out his top 50 prospects and that thing's going to fluctuate. But he had five Texas guys in his top 50. I mean, there have been years where you're excited if you see one or two and, and to have five. And between Byron Murphy, A.D. Mitchell, Xavier Worthy, Jatavian Sanders, and Tavondre Sweat, all of those guys are should be off of the board by the time you get to the fourth round. By the time you get to day three of the draft, all five of those guys should be gone. And then that was without even talking about Christian Jones or Jalen Ford or Jordan Whittington or Jonathan Brooks, guys who you Ryan Watts is gonna have a chance to get drafted. I started looking at it and I'm like, man, like what's the how could this set a record? And I started looking at it. And Texas hasn't had more than five players selected, Eric, in a single draft since 2010. That was coming off that 09 season with Earl Thomas, Colt McCoy, Jordan Shipley, Lamar Houston. That was that draft class. And the school record for draft picks in a seven-round draft is uh, is six. Okay. Or seven, I'm sorry, seven in 2007, which was also the last time Texas had two first-round picks with Michael Griffin and Aaron Ross. So to think of a school like Texas, like, man, seven really is your record for a seven-round draft? Like, you'd think it would be more, but I could very easily see that record being broken this year. And the fact that Sark did it with, like, he did it with, look at all those guys coming from vastly different points to where they got to Texas. Like, Byron Murphy, Murphy, Sanders, and Brooks, they were all recruits that Sark inherited he honored, the, he honored their signings, honored the scholarships, and took them in as freshmen. Didn't evaluate them, but they only played for Sark. You've got Ford, Ford Whittington, Christian Jones, Tavondre Sweat. They were Tom Herman guys. You know, you've got Xavier Worthy, who was recruited, got out of his NLI from Michigan, was recruited by Sark at Bama, and then he got him at Texas. And then, you know, A.D. Mitchell and Ryan Watts came out of the portal. So you've got You've got guys that were already here, recruits you inherited from the previous staff that you didn't know anything about. A couple guys, one guy you recruited, and then a couple of transfers. And three years later, you might have the most productive NFL draft Texas has had in the seven round format. It's remarkable, doesn't even do it justice, man. Considering where this thing was at the end of 2021 with five and seven, and nobody drafted in the 22 draft. It's it's remarkable how Sark has fast-tracked this thing. Jeff, this show is called It's Just an Hour, and we might need a whole another hour for this question I'm going to ask you. But it's, you know, as someone who's a, a relative newcomer to these parts, as you were going through the numbers, my brain was just kind of like, when you said six initially, not that seven is substantially better, you said six, my brain was like, really? Because in my lifetime, 
I can think of certainly the hurricane teams from, you know, the early 2000s. Yeah. Even some of those teams that, you know, probably before then would put together, you know, three, four, five. And of course, you know, again, those teams who had uh, you know, double digits. In my lifetime, I've seen Florida State put together certainly more than five. And I've seen Florida twice, whether it was the Urban Meyer era, <clears throat> put together five. Or even some of those late Spurrier years put together more than five. So I guess, mm-hmm. A, just to, to, you know, respond to kind of what you, you thought there and then ask you the question. But yeah, I mean, to bring this program from where it was to five and seven, to now put out this measure of NFL talent. We talked about it, Jeff. You talked about it a lot. Yeah. Um, this year was special in the sense of the amount of NFL guys, NFL-level talent who was on this roster. It, it probably makes it a tough pill to swallow that you couldn't get over the hump. But nevertheless, I remember you just, you know, kind of, and Chip as well, emphasizing, saying, hey, Texas fans, enjoy this, right? Yeah. You, you guys have been around these parts a long time. Like, this has not been the norm, but that leads me to my question, Jeff. And again, you probably need more than the 12 or so minutes we have left, but I was stunned. I like, as you were going through it, I, I how does that, how, how did that happen? You know, I mean, that's, I, I'm just kind of surprised oh, at, at that number. Yeah. Um, even if you look at some of the Mac drafts, let's say pre, because 2004 was really when it started to turn around and, you know, you had two first-round picks in the 05 draft, Cedric Benson and Derek Johnson. Uh, you know, Mac just did such a great job of recruiting talent and stacking talent that it almost naturally you were going to develop some high draft picks. But I think there was – part of the problem was – I think the strength and conditioning program pretty early in Mac's tenure got to the point where a lot of what Jeff Madden was doing was kind of outdated. Cause I've even talked to, I've talked to my guy, Rod Babers about this. And I've talked to other guys about this. Like they would go to the combine and a lot of people would be underwhelmed by the Texas guys, whether it was guys measuring, not measuring where, you know, supposedly they had been listed by Texas or maybe being slower than they thought or whatever it was, just kind of generally being disappointed. So I think strength conditioning had something to do with it. I think the search for an offensive identity early in Max tenure had something to do with it. It made it, you were just kind of collecting talent, making them fit into kind of this one size fits all kind of offensive scheme with Greg Davis, kind of an antiquated pro style offense. And it just, it didn't work, and it wasn't until you went all in on Vince Young and his own read that you really found something. Um, you know, there were just – there were, and the, the really, it wasn't until that 04, 05, 06 run, that was really when you started to see Texas, and, and it's no coincidence that you have the bulk of your draft picks there. That was really the, the time in Max tenure where they really truly developed line of scrimmage talent. Like, if you look at the two deep on the defensive line in the national championship game against SC, everybody in the two deep on defense, not all of them were drafted, but they all played in the NFL. Uh, Offensive line, Tony Hills was drafted in the 05 season. He was your backup left tackle. He didn't even start. He was your backup to Jonathan Scott. So that was the point where you really started developing line of scrimmage talent. I think that was, especially offensive linemen early in Max tenure and later in Max tenure, that was a really big problem. It's just you were so talented pre 040506 that you were able to get you you were able to mask some of those deficiencies up front until you ran into an Oklahoma or an Oregon, somebody that had like talent or just a really unique scheme that they, they could match scores with you. And then post, you know, quarterback issues and everything. So I just think it was the inability to properly develop, I'd say offensive line talent more than, uh, more so than defensive line talent. But then, I mean, like I said, post-national championship, I don't even think Mac would probably tell you, that staff got lazy. They got complacent because, like I said, you weren't recruiting near as much as you were picking where, you know, a lot of coaches would, I think, mash, mash their foot to the floorboard thinking, all right, I won a national championship at Texas. I could do something special. Like we could take over college football. They kind of put it in cruise control. And it's just, it's, you know, even when Texas was going through that five year losing streak to Oklahoma, even at that point, it was like, man, 
the, you could even hear it then. Like, man, guys, I see Texas gets top five recruiting classes every year. Guys go to Texas and don't get better. You know, BJ, whether it's BJ Johnson or whoever, like guys go to Texas and don't get better. I just felt like strength conditioning had a lot to do with that or lack thereof. And there was a knock on Texas guys, honestly, at one point. Well, two things, because Rod has even talked about this. Right around that 2001-2002 era was when Ricky Williams got in trouble. So I think right or wrong, I think there was a marijuana stigma around Texas guys, that that's kind of what all Texas guys did because Ricky did it. So I think there was fighting some of that a little bit. Um, But I also think there was a toughness question about Texas. Like maybe they're too coddled. Maybe they're too pampered at Texas. Maybe they have it too good. So, you know, the country club atmosphere, I don't know if you've ever heard people talk about that in relation to Texas. So it was just, it's not that Mac wasn't, didn't have a great run because, dude, from 01 through 09, you won double digit games every year. That's not easy to do in college football. But there was definitely some meat left on the bone for sure. And, and, and Jeff, you know, to kind of bring it full circle back to where Texas is now, and apologies if you see me looking down, it's making sure RT hasn't started his presser early. He's had a, a knack for doing that, you know, starting a little bit earlier. But just uh, what, what back time are we supposed to be on? 12.15, but you know, sometimes, you know, he's been on around noonish or 11.55. But nevertheless, uh, just to bring all the way back full circle to Sark, Jeff, I want to ask Steve this question, and it may sound simplistic, but, you know, Butch Davis told me this one time. He said, hey, there's a measure of your school being the cool school and just being in the moment, this is where we want to be, that also aided in recruiting. And I wonder, Jeff, and I'm curious if you see it the same way, if Texas is experiencing some of that when you see so many guys, of course, Jabbar Muhammad chose to go to Oregon for, you know, his own reasons, right? But there was this run of guys saying, all right, you know, whether it was guys come from Alabama or the guys from forever, Texas is where you want to be. Striking when the iron's hot and really stacking talent that I think is part of the reason why you have to be so excited again about this specific run here yeah. with what Texas is doing. Um, I, th- I think that's twofold. One, we did see that early in Max tenure, you know, that 98 season, Ricky wins the Heisman, and Ricky Williams was all over college football at that point. And Texas had a Heisman winner. Mac was, uh, you know, Mac was the king of recruiting at that point. Nobody did it better than him. And I think he was just kind of the perfect fit for Texas at the time. And Texas was the cool school. That first full recruiting class, I mean, you get Chris Sims, you get the Super Bowl MVP son. Corey Redding was the USA Today Defensive Player of the Year. Guys wanted to come to Texas. Texas became the cool school. Um, I also think, too, you've got that now, but you've got it for different reasons. Texas has, in my lifetime, or maybe, maybe under John McAvick, that it happened, but Texas has an offense to recruit to that guys want to come play. And guys want to come play offense for Sark. Man, if you're if you're a quarterback, skill position guy, you want to come play for Sark. So Texas has never really had that. I think the other thing is, whereas before I think it was the family atmosphere and, and kind of that you're insulated, but a lot of people could perceive it as being coddled or pampered. I think now it's all about, you know, the NIL situation at Texas. Which is, which is great. I think a lot of guys see that. They want to be a part of it. But Sark has even talked about this, man, with his ability to relate to players. Like, once guys get in the building, they're not exactly in a hurry to leave. So I think part of it is, I think the NIL, it's almost like, I say this about, I've said this about our publication, and I've said this about, uh, you know, different publications. Like, you know, your franchise pieces, like the pillars of who you are, that, that should get customers in the door. And then it's what they experience when they're in the door that's going to keep them coming back. You know, like for us on the side, I've always looked at it. Look, look, the inside or the stampede, it's going to get people to the site. But do we have a healthy message board culture, which is really the big thing? That's going to keep people coming back. You know, information during the season, during the hot times, are we getting enough information out there? That's going to be the stuff that keeps people coming back. How active are we on the board? It's no different than a newspaper, right? Like you could have a great column, but what's in the guts of it that's going to keep people wanting to come back to read it? Um, I think Sark's offense and NIL opportunities are getting guys to look at Texas. And then I think once they get a look on the inside, they realize, no, I mean, this is, this is a really nice place to be. Um, yeah, I, I think I think there is – there. Texas definitely has an open window right now. And 
I feel better about Sark being able to take advantage of it than I de- definitely than I did Tom Herman after his 10-win season. But even Mac, because like I said, post-national championship, you can start to kind of see the cracks in the foundation of you're still getting by on some really good talent, and a lot of guys on that team were self-motivated. You didn't really, didn't really need to do a whole lot. Not to say that Mac just completely checked out, but because he didn't. But um, like I said, that window wasn't taken advantage of. Sark is taking advantage of this window for sure. So, Eric, I know you got a you got to run. You want to say anything? Uh, any parting shot here before you jump off? No, just say as always, man. Appreciate you having me on. Check out the uh, the content horns twenty four seven and BK. Thank you for giving me the platform again. You know, I appreciate it, my man. Dude, thanks go to you. I know you got a press conference to uh, run off to, brother. So get out of here. But great show today. Thank you, man. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it, man. No doubt. All right. It's only an hour. We're getting ready to wrap up. Make way for that midday show with BK and Trey. Where's your co-host, BK? Is he lagging behind right now? Mm, It's 11.59, so he's got one minute before we get mad at him for being late. Let's be honest. You've never been been mad at Trey for being late. Um, BK, when's the first time? I, I, I think I've asked you this before. When's the first time you really remember watching Texas football and being cognizant of what was going on? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I remember the 05 National Championship game, but I'd be lying if I told you, like, I vividly remembered that entire season. Um, I would say 2008 is the first year, so I would have been 14. Like, I, I remember bits and pieces of being a Texas fan before that. But I would say the 08 season is like the first season that I vividly remember being locked in on every single game and like knowing where I was watching most of those games and really caring about uh, what was going on every single Saturday. I just feel like Mac post-national championship, as much as I love and admire Mac Brown, I feel like Mac post-national championship kind of wrote the book on how not to build off a national championship season. Yeah, I think you're right. And almost like there were all those rumors that surfaced after 2009 that was like, oh, if Mac won that title against Alabama, then he would have retired. And there, was, there was a part of uh, the way Mac handled the post-05 run that kind of indicated that he might have been at least thinking about it. What's the old adage? Like, if you think about retirement, that means you've already retired. Yeah. I think that's kind of BS, but uh, you would know more than I do. I just kind of yeah. showed my age. But there, there are some things, hearing guys like you talk about the way recruiting went after that 05 season, like this kind of kind of felt like the uh, the brakes were being tapped a little bit. If it, if it wasn't there, and please, if like Roy Miller or – Quan or anybody's listening, please don't get offended by what I say because I love you guys. But if it wasn't for Colt McCoy and Will Muschamp, the Mac Brown dynasty starts to fall before 2010. Colt McCoy masked a lot of the deficiencies Texas had on offense, mm-hmm. and Will Muschamp completely reinvented the defense and honestly brought and Trey can speak on this. Will Muschamp brought, you know, there was that group 0406 that I think personality wise, whether it was Casey Stuttered, Lyle Senline, Brian Robinson, like Texas, it's almost like the players themselves brought a toughness. I don't think it was like from the top down, but that was just a tough group of guys. But Will Muschamp brought, a toughness and an edge to Texas in his two his first two years as defensive coordinator that I, I haven't seen before. And really, I mean, until this team this year, I probably haven't seen it since. Like there was just something, there was something real special about the Will Muschamp hire that got Texas to that point where they they went 25 and two over two years. Who is the cat? That served as Tom Herman's last DC. I'm forgetting his name. Chris Ash. Ash. There was a toughness with that team, but maybe as if not a little bit more important than that, there was a uh, technique that started to be taught. Yeah. That really helped this team turn around some of their uh, tackling woes, especially. But you're probably right about that. Muschamp is the last guy before Kwiatkowski to uh, to bring a sort of toughness 
into the program on the defensive side of the ball? Like, you know, pre, pre again, I, I exclude the 04 to 06 group. But before that group and post-Will Muschamp, it's almost like Mac just talked about we need to be more physical, we need to be more physical, we need to be tougher. And it's like, you know you know when you've got, or I think we're going to be tougher this year, I think we're going to be more physical. I've come to realize, guys, when, when football teams, you know when football teams are tough, when they are physical, when they don't have to tell you that they're tough and they're physical, you just see it in the product. Yeah, right. you, you see it and yeah. you hear it too. Like yeah. I, I've made this comment a lot. Like when, when an Alabama or a Georgia player hits somebody, it sounds different on TV. Yeah, like I'm sure it sounds and feels different in person, but like even on TV, there's just a different sound when a real physical football team is tackling or blocking or anything. And Texas hasn't had that sound in a long time, but I think it's uh, it's kind of starting to come back. Yeah, I, I felt that. I felt that this year. I, I felt that with the honestly with that defense in 2017, the the Malik Jefferson, Holton Hill, Deshaun Elliott defense, but. God, the offense was just so bad that it brought everything down. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mike, that defense and Michael Dixon were the two reasons why you won seven games that year. MVP. Yeah, Charlie Strong's defense, that defense, which was part Charlie Strong, I guess, because he and Vance Bedford were calling it, but that was those were holdovers from Mac Brown. Yeah. That was a good tough defense, too. Yeah, and and you had you had guys that, you know, Malcolm Brown, Quandre Diggs. You know, you had guys that were kind of self-starters. Like, yeah, there wasn't a coach that needed to give Quandre Diggs a speech on how to be tough or how to be intense on the field, you know? But as a matter of fact, Quandre Diggs was weirdly one of those polarizing guys for Texas that some Texas fans, for whatever reason, didn't like him very much. I don't know if it was a swagger thing or what. I was like, there is... There are like two or three guys on this roster that I can guarantee you will earn an NFL paycheck... Uh, for at least the next couple of years, once their college career is over with, Quandre Diggs was like number one for me. It was like yeah. even Malcolm Brown. Here, here's the here's the thing about Quandre. By the end, he just did not care what anybody thought of his opinion. He's just gonna give it. Yeah. And honestly, man, as a writer, I I love that era of Texas football because usually tell when guys walked around and their bag of F's was empty. They just didn't have any more to give. Kenny Vaccaro got that way. Alex Okafor got that way. Like there's a couple guys through the years that David Snow was one that got that way. Like they just they just don't care. So that's when you get some of the best like unsolicited opinions of what's really good and what can really you can hang your hat on in the program and like what's what's not right. Mm. Quandre dude, uh, Quandre Diggs, good dude. Uh, Great dude. And you talk about guys who would give his opinion. I mean, we were in school at the same time, and I ran into him on Sixth Street a couple of times, and. He would give his opinion on certain things there. And it was it was great for the student radio show that had two people listening and my two parents. But they 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 got a lot of good Texas info from Quandre Diggs there. So Oh, wait a second. Were you doing man on the street interviews for your student radio show on Sixth Street on the weekends? No, this was just talking to Quandre Diggs and then bringing it to my five AM graveyard shift student radio show that nobody listened to. It, giving it was, zero fucks and making your opinion known is very commonplace on Dirty Sixth Street. <laughs> Andre Diggs was that person, regardless of the. True. Uh, it, was, it, it wasn't even like the most outlandish stuff with Quandre. It was stuff like one year, he, as his senior year, he'd given all the incoming freshmen on defense nicknames, and he's just running them down in a, in a press availability one day. And he's like, then you got Ed Freeman. He's burger because he's a burger short of being a linebacker. And and so I, I go I go. You think he likes being called Burger? And Quandre looks at me and goes, "I don't really care if he likes being called Burger. He's gonna be a linebacker if he doesn't look out. So he's Burger." I'm like, "All right, good. I'm good to know. Good to know where Quandre stands on everything right now." Oh man, yeah. The the Charlie Strong talk makes me want to have a wristband and the Will Muschamp <laughs> talk. I was looking around for a whiteboard in this room, but I I saw neither. Dude, it's it's fun to hear guys like Roy Miller and Lamar Houston talk about like the first must champ meeting or the first must champ workout or practice where, you know, he smashes a whiteboard or kicks over a Gatorade jug or throws a chair across the room and it's like, dude, this dude is like batshit crazy. Like, but then you realize it's like, okay, this guy he may be batshit crazy, but he's a freaking genius at drawing up defenses. 
Yeah. I think you want that as your DC, right? Maybe not as your HC, but as no. your DC, that meathead yeah. mentality where you know, sometimes goes above and beyond. Like that, that can play, that can work. And I don't, I, I've never in my lifetime, there's never been a Texas defensive coordinator better at in game adjustments than Will Muschamp. Mm-hmm. You know, he, had, he had the Oklahoma State game in 09 where after like the first drive, he pulls the whole defense over. He's like, okay, that game plan we worked on all week, forget it. Like, here's what we're going to do. And, Draws it up on the on the fly, and I think they beat Oklahoma State like forty nine ten or something like that in Stillwater, whatever it was. So that works. Hey, it's always good to uh, share some Will Muschamp stories. Yeah, thanks for doing your job today. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go do my job and go ram my face into a chalkboard and maybe take a nap after this. I don't know. So. <laughs> yes. At any rate, fellas, I'll be back to do it tomorrow. Maybe Jordan will be back. Maybe you won't, but I'll be back at eleven o'clock tomorrow. Looking forward to it. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Thanks, John. Good job.